One of my favorite courses in university was psychology. And I remember studying Abraham Maslow. He was an American psychologist and he was best known for creating Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I've referenced these needs through my entire career trying to find insights that matter. His theory is quite simple that our actions as human beings are motivated by certain needs like food, shelter and clothing, or more psychological needs like love, belonging and esteem. And to the very fortunate who have the time and resources, we can seek self-actualization, the meaning of life, the meaning of our life. In his initial work, he suggested it was all or nothing, that we couldn't advance unless we satisfied where we were deficient. We couldn't think about love and belonging if we didn't have food or shelter. We couldn't possibly look at higher purpose if we weren't first feeling like we belonged. Over time, he softened that stance, and I have to agree. See, my belief is that every one of you are on a series of quests to survive, to do more, and to be more. To some, and inside a country as wealthy as ours, their daily quest is just simply survival. Asking for spare change on the street, visiting a food bank, finding shelter in a cold night, or escaping from an abusive situation. To others who are more fortunate, the quest might be to better the shelter you have, to turn basic food into a, a food adventure, accelerate your career, unleash your passions, or maybe find the time to quieten your mind to find your inner self. But what connects all of us are the people who help us get to where we need to go. Our mentors and advisors, our helpers. They are part of our community, and the more we feel we belong, and the more we feel we can stand on equal footing with them, the better both we and they feel. That is human nature at its best, not to tear each other apart, not to divide, but to be connected and to be together. Communities matter. Take an honest look at the pace that you're currently living at. Could you do this forever? Would you even want to? For most people, the answer is actually no. And maybe you tell yourself, hey, it's a busy season. But if your busy season has no ending, it's not a season, it's your life. So as a result, overwhelmed, overcommitted, overworked, that's the false script an inordinate number of people adopt to try to be successful. As a result, slammed is the new normal, distractions are unavoidable, and life gets reduced to going through the motions. Are you tired of living that way? You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. From the beginning of civilization, we met at the town square, inside a church or school, or around an office cooler to feel and be connected. And today, I suppose our communities are more often than not online. Where I would argue biases are more pronounced and exclusivity reigns over inclusivity. And that is why today I want to do a show about community, being face to face. I have to state up front that I am spiritual but not religious. So you might be surprised to know that Carrie Newoff is my guest today to talk about community. Well, Carrie Newoff is a former lawyer, but also the founding pastor of Connexus Church in Barrie, one of the most influential churches in North America. And today, Kerry spends most of his time advising church leaders and business leaders on how to create a community where people are engaged and connected and feel purposeful and feel that they belong. Kerry Newoff, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Well, I was, I was grateful for the introduction and really look forward to getting to know you better. So talk to me about your, your mentorship, because I love the fact you're founding pastor, but you've got a whole new group of people coming in. You had to kind of surrender what you created, 
to other people. Talk to me about how that came about because passing the baton, I didn't have to do it. I always left and started something new. You created a legacy and then had to turn it over. And I want to, I'm interested in how difficult that was for you. It's a strange thing that lead pastors do. I mean, if you think about a CEO, right? Like when you sold your companies, it's not like, oh yeah, uh, you know, Tony's down the hall in a cubicle sitting there working on new ventures. It's like, you're gone. Like, you know, whatever the contract is, you're gone. And so I'm still part of the church that I founded. But I, I think of it in terms of three levels of an organization, three levels of leadership, Tony. And this came to me maybe a decade ago or so while I was still lead pastor. But uh, level one is nothing runs without you. So you can barely take a vacation. That's like the startup phase. The uh, and, but, but a lot of people stay in that startup phase, not because they're startups, but because the leader has never really developed a team around him, around her. And I definitely was there. Like I started organizations. I started this company. It's like you're in startup phase. Everything is 100% dependent on you. Hopefully you don't stay there long. Level two is things run without you. You can take a vacation. You can take the weekend. You can take a week or whatever. And I think a lot of leaders end up getting there. But very, very rare, and it takes a lot more intentional leadership development, is that uh, things don't just run without you. They grow without you. That's where you've really equipped the, the values in your team, the mission in your team. You've given them agency. You've given them autonomy. I think we got there in the church because when I stepped out of the lead pastor role, my successor, Jeff Brody, did an incredible job and it grew too bigger than when I led it. I was still involved, but I'm not really involved at all anymore other than attending and giving and that kind of thing. But, you know, can it grow without you? And that's what I'm working on in my company now. It's really developing people. It's developing my team and saying, well, you make the decision or what do you think? And so I'm still the voice. I'm still the guy behind the microphone. But a lot of the strategy, a lot of the outlook is is driven by others, guided by me. But I want to get the company to the point where it grows without you. That's a long process. And it involved me stepping back, realizing that I'm not the product, I'm not the key to the success of the organization. Yeah, I can get it started, but it's going to take the values. And in the church, it makes a lot of sense because church has been around for thousands of years. It'll be around a lot longer than I'm around. And it's not really mine, even though I started it, right? Like that's not, it's not a business you can sell. It's it's like something that lives um, in the hearts and minds of the people and obviously, you know, wasn't, if you have my faith system, even created by God or created by humans, it was uh, of, of divine intention. When I was researching to the interview you, I was fascinated that, you know, when you talk about your upbringing, going into law, which is a very pragmatic, quite prescriptive. I mean, there's a lot of creativity in law. Don't get me wrong. But to get, to get through that first gauntlet, it's quite rigid. Yet, as I, the more I hear you, you're a philosopher, you know, study of human life. I'm curious how law started that way, because I've met some really interesting people, including Susan Cain, who started off as a lawyer. Did you go into law because you were trying to impress your parents, or was that really a vocation that you thought you'd be, you would love to do? No, uh, you're, you're right. Very perceptive. I think I was probably trying to impress my parents. I was eight when I decided to go into law. It's funny, I've talked to my sisters about this. I have three sisters. I'm the eldest. And there was just an expectation of 
and I knew it, I don't resent it. I'm actually grateful for it because it shaped my life. But I kind of knew from the time I was little, I was going to get an education because my parents never got beyond high school. My grandparents got like third grade, fourth grade in wartime Europe. This is like, it was the early 70s, I guess, when I'm eight, mid 70s when I'm eight years old. There's no internet. It's like, you're going to be a firefighter. You're going to be a baseball player or what are you going to be? And I'd heard that lawyer was supposed to be good. So I just decided it was going to be a lawyer. And then even through my teen years, I saw it as probably prestigious as, oh, you would be successful. It's it's a key that opens up a lot of doors, but I didn't really know what was involved. And again, if you're under 35 listening to this, you're like, how did you not know? It's like, there was no internet. I mean, unless you you heard it from people around you, you listened to your parents. My parents thought it was a good idea. And TV, the TV narrative was always the lawyer, the prosecutor, the Perry Mason that in 45 minutes could solve any oh, yeah. LA law. I mean, it was a glorified profession. I mean, it was, you know, mm-hmm. the nice suits, nice cars. I mean, Brian Baumler said, my, my dad's lawyer had the nicest car, therefore I was going to go in and become a lawyer. Yeah, I think there was probably that gravitational pull and I've definitely had that gravitational pull to success, Tony. And so, you know, it was like, well, if I'm a lawyer, I'll be successful. And I remember I was dating somebody uh, probably just before I got accepted into, into the law schools I had applied for. And she asked me, why do you want to go into law? And it just stopped me in my tracks. And I realized I have no idea when I want to go into law. Now I've wanted this for like 15 years at this point, 10 years at this point. And I just made something up. I said, because I want to help people. <laughs> it was like totally made up, totally made up. So I don't know why I wanted to go into law, but you landed. I got into the law school of my dreams, Osgood Hall. And so goes the journey. And you're right. It was really rigid for a free form thinker who doesn't like to be controlled. Law school kicked my butt. It was, it was hard. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. But somehow I feel like I see the kingdom of God even a little bit closer, watching the birds in my backyard, talking to my neighbors, connecting with my parents every day, and just being a little slower and more present for the people I actually know in real life. It's been, it's been, I don't want to renormalize my life <laughs> back to where it was before. And I loved it. And it was an incredible privilege, but this is somehow better. My guest today is Carrie Newoff, the founding pastor of Conexus Church in Barrie. He's a much sought after speaker and thought leader. 15 year dream, slugging it through one of the toughest law schools in North America. All of a sudden you're no longer in cement, you're about to climb into the world of everything you dreamed about. Then you decide, you know, this isn't right for me. It was, it was a supernatural experience. And it's interesting because there are people you can meet who say, I hear from God every day. I don't hear from God every day, Tony. I. I don't hear from God very often. I read the Bible, I pray. Uh, But there was a period between first and second year law where I had a series of what I would call supernatural events happen in my life uh, that made it, well, one, one I'll tell, it's not that weird. I was just working in a law firm because I was a, a person of faith and I thought, okay, I need... I need to find an ethical law firm because, you know, lawyers are sometimes questioned for their ethics. And I'm like, no, with the kind of person I want to be and the kind of person I hope I'm becoming, I I want to practice law ethically. So I'd found that firm. It was in my hometown in Midland. And I was working one afternoon in August. I was 24, getting ready to go back into second year law. And it was around three o'clock in the afternoon. I was finishing working on a file. 
And I had this daydream, this like vision, this moment. I was wide awake, but I saw a vision of myself in my mind 20 years in the future. I was 44 years old, not 24. Wildly successful career-wise, but personally morally bankrupt. My family had fallen apart. I wasn't married at the time, but my family had fallen apart. My kids hated me and I was a moral failure. And I just knew that the, I, I sensed in that moment that that vision, that law wasn't for me. That what that vision meant was that law wasn't for me. And I'm like, holy cow, that's crazy. I left the office, went into the library of the firm and was just sort of looking out the bay window, reflecting on what had happened, going, what just happened? And I felt this gravitational pull to look down the street. I turned to the right and I could see my home church that I grew up in. And the part of the church I could see was, I knew to be the pastor's study. And I felt a sensation of voice that said, you should be in there. And I'm like, what? That's amazing. Like a hundred career choices. Ministry was number 117. Like it was, it wasn't even on the list. And I always thought, oh, I guess that's what you do if you can't get a real job, right? Like it's not prestigious, doesn't pay a lot of money. And I'm like, really? So the day's winding down. I go and pick up my girlfriend, soon to be fiance. We go to my parents' house for dinner. I've known her since first year law. We started dating in first year, my now wife. And we had never talked about ministry ever. We talked about our faith, but we never talked about ministry. And we're driving to my parents' place for dinner. And she turns to me out of the blue and goes, have you ever thought about going into ministry? And I'm like, "Wow, you'll never believe what just happened yeah. in, uh, today at the office. Like, it's crazy. And that started a discernment process. I was encouraged to finish law. My dad encouraged me to do it. I'm glad I did. Why are you glad you did other than making your dad happy. Well, it was making my dad happy, but I think the greater purpose is, you know, I do know a little bit of law. People, when I started ministry, when I got into the churches, people would ask me, are you still using your law? And I'm like, well, I'm not negotiating contracts or like, <laughs> you know, no. But I think the answer now is absolutely, I use it every day. Like you say, Osgood's one of the hardest law schools in North America. I mean, they kicked my butt. I was straight A's in undergrad. I dropped to like a B average in first year law and I'm like, oh, this is real. And I still remember like I had 72 pages of single spaced study notes for my first year in men law course. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life academically, but it, it changed. It taught me how to think critically, not, not to be a critic, but how to think critically, how to analyze how to look. So now what do I do? What do I do? I help leaders solve problems. And in when I was leading a church, I could bring all those analytical reasoning skills into the pulpit and I could craft a message every week that hopefully helped people see what the issue was and help change their mind. It helped me understand how to lead a team and et cetera. So, you know, I, I look back on that with great gratitude and a lot of fondness. Do you think the concept of critical thinking and learning how to, you know, how to synthesize and prioritize and decide which way to go, does that exist when you're studying to be in the ministry? Does that exist in other places? I mean, is that something that you learned in law that should be fundamental for education? You know, it's a great question. I've never been asked that, Tony. And it exists to a certain extent in seminary. So I went to a mainline seminary. And I mean, we studied, you would think everybody there is like, you know, God, go, 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 go. But I, I had a few professors who had lost their faith and like a lot of people have over the years. 
And we studied German higher criticism. I studied a little bit of, uh, you know, history and so on and so forth. But it wasn't the degree of rigor that law school was. Like law school was like the West Point of critical thinking. It was, and, and almost, you know, I know a lot of lawyers, almost any lawyer who went to a decent law school will tell you that it was um, really difficult. I did not do particularly well on the law school admission test, the LSAT. Um, I had enough to get me in, but it was my undergraduate marks and my reference letters that got me into Osgood and some other, you know, Western and Queens and some of the other schools that I applied to. But yeah, I, I think it would be helpful because if you look at what happened, like I think we were better at critical thinking in the 90s when I graduated seminary than we are today. If you look at what critical thinking has happened with social media and real news versus fake news. Uh, one of the great laments, I think, of this last decade is that people's ability to think critically has plummeted. I'm always trying to get people to think in the middle ground. I don't care what the situation is. Yep. Is there a middle? And I look at social media hurting people like a sheepdog herded into these camps with like-minded people who think only read like-minded content, who only validate each other's like-minded and then become very angry at the other camp because they don't agree with them. I think our politicians are fostering this. I think social media, because that keeps eyeballs monetized because you're, you know, you're, you're getting validated. And I think that the moats around these camps is really where the middle ground used to stand on. So I'm fascinated with what you're doing with your community. Should the reinvention of organized religion be much more around the middle ground? versus just simply being, this is the ground to stand on. I say that because the greatest renaissance in society has been when we've come together, debated, reached consensus. Not, not everybody's always happy, but we're advancing together. And I've seen what I've seen now is this world being torn apart. And I'm wondering what's going to step in there in the middle, like Martin Luther King did, like Gandhi did in India. What's going to bring our world back together? And I, I see it in the United States. I see it in Canada. I mean, the greatest democracies are under threat because we don't believe in each other anymore. It's me versus you. It's Republican versus Democrat. It's us versus they. Is that not where religion can step in and go, this is a reinvention that we can do that's less about dictating this is the way to lead your life and much more about this is the place to lead your life? Yeah, I think it can be. I don't think we are doing a particularly good job, but I think we we can be. Um, I am a middle ground person. And I think, you know, I've done quite a bit of research. There's a great book by a Duke University professor, uh, Chris Bale, called Breaking the Social Media Prism. And he makes the argument that uh, these stats are close, if not completely accurate, but we can fact check after. 6% of the people online who hold extremist views are driving 73 or 76% of the divisive online content. So most people are like you and me, Tony. I'm sure we don't align on every single issue and everything, but you know what? We're, we can get along just fine. Like I don't have to vilify you. You don't have to vilify me. And we, we say in my company now, because I've been out of direct day-to-day -day church leadership for about seven years is we want to create a space for the good people to show up on the internet. That's what we want to do. Like we believe there's a lot of good people. I had I had church leaders in my backyard for a couple of days and we hung out and had meals and went boating and I was just building into them. And I'm like, we were all sitting around the, the fire pit in my backyard yesterday. 
And we were all talking about what was the highlight of the last 36 hours we spent together. They asked me and I said, you know, times like this restore my hope in humanity. We were not all from the same denomination. We didn't all believe the same things exactly about God or the Christian faith that we shared. Um, But my goodness, what united us was so much greater than what divided us. And I think one of the mistakes the church has made, and unfortunately, this is when we get into the news all the time because somebody takes a big stand and is willing to go to jail or is, you know, claiming persecution or is saying these people have it all wrong and I have it all right. Jesus, who who I follow, was a great, like you said, like Gandhi, like uh, somebody who brought people together. Martin Luther King, highly controversial figure, also a pastor. A lot of people forget he was a pastor. But, you know, I went to Ebenezer Baptist Church a number of years ago. It's a tiny little church. You know, Dr. King united a nation. Now, he was deeply controversial in the time, but as he said at the time, like there were a lot of, I've interviewed pastors who are now in their 80s, who said, I was around when Dr. King was making his march. And their great regret is that they didn't do more as white people to support the cause at the time because they were too afraid. He was rumored to be a communist. He was rumored to be this. He was rumored to be that. In the same way that we see aspersions cast on civil rights leaders today. And they wish they had done more and subsequently did a lot more. But I think, you know, the church gets into the news when we mess up and we mess up way too often. But I think if you really look around, Jesus was always bringing people together who didn't belong together. When you really start to study scripture, for example, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which most people would know. What's a Good Samaritan? They're Good Samaritan laws, right? Your vehicle is broken down at the side of the road. You know, I stop to say, Tony, are things okay? Do you need need me to call? Is your cell phone out of battery? Like, what what do you need? That's a Good Samaritan. Now, the radical nature of the Good Samaritan story is that the Samaritans in Jesus' day and the Jews were enemies. They hated each other. It was like Democrats and Republicans. And Jesus was Jewish, but the hero in the story is a Samaritan. And so he's basically saying, my people walk by this guy who got beat up at the side of the road, and then this despised enemy, this progressive, this QAnon person came along and took care of him and paid for his convalescence. And you should do the same thing. And Jesus was always building bridges, always building bridges, always reconciling people. It was really controversial in his day. Ultimately, it got him killed in the same way that it got King killed. But I think we should be bridge builders, not barrier erectors. This is Tony Chapman. When we return, Kerry Newoff and I will delve into how he stepped aside, handed the rudder to another, so that Kerry could search for another challenge. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. Investing in Canada, well, that matters to RBC. $500 billion in sustainable financing to combat climate change. $500 million for future launch. A 10-year program to prepare youth for the jobs of tomorrow. Helping to discover the next generation of Olympians, artists monetizing their talents, women entrepreneurs pursuing their dreams, supporting mental health, and so much more. Investing in Canada, well, that matters to RBC. A lot of leaders who are burning out or are burned out don't realize they're burned out. They just thought it was normal, right? Nobody sleeps at night. Um, Everyone's tired all the time. Um, Yeah, my passion's gone, but isn't that life? You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. 
My guest today is Kerry Newoff, the founding pastor of Connexus Church in Barrie. He's a much sought after speaker and thought leader. You did a big pivot in your life because you set it up the way you wanted. You broke the status quo. You started looking at online and technologies and communities, and you could have just done this the rest of your life. But what made you move from being, you know, the pastor to someone that said, maybe my calling now is to help. I think it first started very much centered on helping churches reinvent themselves and the leaders of churches to now even extending to leadership in general in terms of how do we elevate society with a lot of the principles that you, it sounds interesting enough, you, the critical thinking you learned as a lawyer, but the values that you learned as a pastor. So how did that all come about that you went from the lead singer to being somebody behind the scenes going, I'm going to help produce and reinvent and elevate churches and congregations. And from what I understand, you do it all over the world. Yeah, it probably seems really intentional. It was more of an experimental journey than anything and an uncertain journey, but I'll give you the brief narrative. So I led some local churches for 20 years, started with some very small declining Presbyterian churches, have a lot of affection for Presbyterianism. Uh, We started to see some growth Uh, We became a really rapidly growing church, one of the, I think, the fastest growing in the country in our denomination and one of the largest. And then around that time, I thought about, well, what about starting over again as non-denominational? It would be an easier bridge to people who don't go to church. We think we have something to share with them, et cetera. So in 2007, that was 95, I started at those three small churches. We um, voted to become a non-denominational church, started over again as Connexus Church. I led that for eight years as the lead pastor. I just It just got a lot bigger than I thought it would. We had over 1,000 in attendance, maybe 1,100 my final year as lead pastor, and three to 4,000 people who called our church home, which being north of Toronto is you know, rather, rather large. And it started to freak me out a little bit because I'm like, oh my gosh, like what happens? This isn't mine. It's a church. The church has been around for thousands of years. It'll be around a long time after I'm gone. Uh, how do I steward this? And how do I make sure I don't run this thing into a into the ground? Because I'd seen a lot of clergy get stale over time. And I really started to think about succession. And we had a great team. And, you know, talking about the three levels of levels of leadership, nothing runs without you. Uh, things run without you or things grow without you. I thought it's time to really position our church to grow without me. So around the time I turned 50, I approached a guy that I had hired as a youth pastor about eight years earlier. And he did really well in that. And I asked him to become our director of operations. He led us through the construction of our broadcast location, which we did in 2014. And then in 2015, we went through a discernment process where I said, maybe it's time for me to step back to become lesser and make Jeff Brody the lead pastor. And so we did that. And that was a a lot of prayer, a lot of consultation with elders and wise people. And in the fall of 2015, I stepped back. That was a, you know, a prayerful step saying, I don't want the church to be dependent on my leadership. Because what happens a lot is you get, you know, somewhat charismatic leader or something, there's a lot of growth. And then that leader steps aside or gets stale and the church just kind of slides down. The church is bigger than me and more important. But I didn't know what was ahead. I didn't know what was ahead. How much of this was, I don't want to lose Jeff Brody and it's his turn to take it over versus your sense that it was time to let somebody else grab the rudder. Some of it was definitely a factor because we're an hour north of Toronto. 
uh, getting church leaders to leave a big city or come up from the U.S. or wherever, because we had we had global attention at that point, or at least American attention at that point, was hard. He, I thought, was the best person I knew in our orbit to lead it rather than doing a big search. And I probably thought I had three to five years left in me to the point where I was in my mid-50s. But I also realized if I was Jeff, who's a decade younger than me, I'm probably not going to wait around till he's 45. If I was Jeff, I wouldn't wait around till you know I was 45 to see what this guy does with it. I probably would have moved on. We've had that conversation since then. And he said, if you didn't move then or a year later, I probably would have moved on. And I'm like, okay, good. That was a good call. And at the end of the day, it's not about me. Like that's like, if you le- if you leave nothing when you're gone, did you really lead it well? There's a great book called The Founder's Dilemma. You had the courage to let it happen. You know, to have that ability to realize that, as opposed to when he comes in and says, look, I'm leaving because I'm going to find my own. Well, don't leave, I'll quit. That creates the sense that I only got the job out of blackmail. In this case, it happened organically. Between this entire period that you're talking about from, you know, taking over three failing churches to this, when did the breakup, when did your breakdown happen? Your mental breakdown? It happened about 11 years in the year before we launched Connexus Church. So it happened about 14, 15 months before we launched a church. So you ha- you have this complete meltdown. A year later, you decide to start something brand new. So <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm also stupid, Tony. So, you know, there's that. <laughs> I'm curious because, you know, that's again what I find. You might, The year off where you're trying to heal yourself, your brain still keeps going saying, what's next? Yeah, it does. So I was, you know, and fortunately for me, burnout takes so many different forms. And for me, it was more like an implosion. Um, I just lost my motivation, lost my joy, lost my energy. And it was it was three really dark months. And I was I came clean with the elders. First, I thought, okay, I'm really tired. I'm going to take a few weeks off and I'll be fine. And it got worse, not better. So I came back and met with our, our governing board, our elders. And I just said, I'm not well and I don't know what's going on, but I might be burned out. And they were fantastic. They were just, they were like, it'll make me emotional. They were just so compassionate, concerned. Do you want a sabbatical? And I kind of knew myself well enough to say, if I took a sabbatical now, I don't know that I'd ever come back. And I felt like I was done, but I felt like, you know, in my faith system, God wasn't done with me. So that happened in May of 2006. In by September, I felt the first flicker of hope. And I had a lot of muscle memory. Like I knew how to preach. I knew how to deliver a sermon. So I took some extended time off, did a lot of counseling, a lot of like crying, grieving losses, getting some sleep. And so started to get a little bit of of energy back in the tank. And then a little flicker of hope and excitement about the future came forward. And I would say by the end of the year, I was walking up straight again. I was was feeling maybe 60 to 70% back to normal, which for an energetic entrepreneurial guy is a lot of energy. Yeah, and then and then the next year there was a series of events that that led us through that. But I would say it was another couple of years before I really found a new normal and a healthier normal. But I was healthy enough to like help launch a church and uh, do everything that that was required. But I, I was still leading with a limp. So I got to ask you a tough question. So when you say God wasn't done with me yet, was that your excuse to just continue to be you know even though when you're approaching burnout you're just like 
this is this is how I could justify because I imagine your wife, the people around you could see these signs. Yeah. Is that an easy thing to put into your vernacular to give you permission to defeat it? And I don't use the word addict as a negative, but defeat this insatiable appetite to for everything you're doing. I mean, is that ever that way that you just go, well, because God's not done with me. I have permission to do it. I felt like I had no gifts to offer. I, I think if I look back on it, I was probably clinically depressed. What was the gift of that season is I had elders, I had friends, I had mentors, I had a family who said, it's not over. When I prayed about it as a person of faith, I did not feel released from my calling to lead ministry. Like from a career perspective, I had job offers in Toronto and law that would pay two or three X what I would have started as a pastor. And then I had an opportunity to serve at a larger church in Toronto at 2x what I started as at these little Presbyterian churches for. But I really felt a calling to these churches. Like I felt that at a personal and spiritual level. And I just didn't feel, and you know, I'm a believer in living wages. So what do we do as a church grew? It's like, we're going to pay our staff a living wage, not a crazy wage, but like a living wage so that people don't have to beg for groceries. I really felt like, okay, I'm not released from this yet. And now I have to find a new way to live. And so the gift of that burnout, Tony, was I realized if I go back to my old pace and my success addiction and performance addiction and all those those things that somehow, you know, people had authentic life change in the midst of that, but I wasn't the healthiest I could be. There was some some selfishness driving that. There was some mixed motives driving the church growth. And I feel like the last 16 years, the God that I believe in has been quietly dissecting my heart and going, oh, look, there's some more selfishness here. Let's take that out. And why are you so addicted to your success? Let's let's pick that apart. So it's been a continual journey that continues to this day about sifting my motives and trying to, to figure out how to serve with a more pure, more altruistic heart. And, you know, that's something I'm really grateful for. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Kerry Newoff, the founding pastor of Connexus Church in Barrie. He's a much sought after speaker and thought leader. You've had phenomenal success. Talk to me about how that came about. I mean, you kind of go through the dark ages, you reinvent with a new church. You've now turned this church over to Jeff. How did you find this new tightrope? And did you ever think it would be as long and high as it is in terms of what you've accomplished from that base? No, there was no strategic plan. It was an accident slash providence slash grace. So as part of my burnout recovery, I'm like, I got to find a new normal. I have to figure out how to survive in a healthy way that actually makes the church healthier too. Like, you know, a burned out pastor is not going to lead a healthy church. A driven pastor is not going to lead a healthy church. So I'm like, I got I to gotta get healthier. For the sake of my marriage, for the sake of my sons, I had, I had to get healthier. So part of that is I had no hobbies before I burned out. So I said, well, what do I enjoy doing? And I didn't know. I bought a camera. I tried photography that lasted a year. 
It wasn't really it. I, I started cycling. I enjoy barbecue. I still do that to this day. Uh, we got a used boat and I started boating, really enjoyed that. But I also really enjoyed writing and I loved helping leaders because, you know, I started in Oro Medanti for your Canadian listeners who know where that is. It's between Barrie and Aurelia, about an hour north of Toronto. I mean, we barely had the internet. I, I was starved for information as a young leader. And then, you know, fast forward to 2008, 2009 and beyond, we have the internet now. I'm like, oh, I could write a blog and I can start helping other leaders. And so I did this while I was still the lead pastor. I'd do it in the morning. I found it very energizing. I'd get up at 5 a.m., write a blog post two or three times a week and started blogging regularly in 2012. And what happened was lots of people showed up. There was no, it was the early days of the internet. It wasn't like marketing dollars or anything. It's just hundreds of thousands of page views in a matter of months. I'm like, whoa. And then I was doing some speaking because our church had grown. I was speaking in Canada. I'd gotten to know some people in the US. They kept inviting me down. I was having these amazing conversations with uh, leaders, often in green rooms, right? You're backstage waiting to go on. And you know that circuit. You're having these amazing conversations with people. And I always leave going, gosh, I wish my board could have heard that. I wish my staff could have heard that. I wish everybody could have heard it. And podcasting was something I was starting to get into as a listener. And I thought maybe I could start a leadership podcast. So in 2012, I started writing a blog regularly every week. And then in 2014, I launched the Leadership Podcast. And again, it was one of those things where it just kind of took off. And first tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people showed up. So fast forward to 2015, a year later after I launched the podcast, and I had some a little bit of speaking income, hadn't monetized the podcast or the blog, but I said, I'm going to take a pay cut at our church. I stayed on to teach at our church for a few years. But I have to trust God for the gap. Like, I don't know. We were putting two kids through computer engineering and accounting and it's at university. I'm like, those are not cheap degrees. And we weren't exactly floating in money, but it's like, okay, I'm taking a leap of faith. And honestly, you know, it it just took off from there when I gave it a little more focus. You know, we're, we're at 24 million downloads on the podcast now and I get to interview leaders like you and top leaders from around the world. You know, the website gets... I don't know, 7 million, 8 million hits like page views a year. And we had the privilege of serving millions of leaders around the world. You know, it wasn't part of a, a plan, a strategy. It just kind of happened. And then we reverse engineered, okay, well, I need to hire a team. We had so much inbound. It's like, how do we, how do we monetize this in an ethical way? And so 99% of what I do is free. And the 1% that gets paid pays for everything. So it worked out really well. Do you struggle with that because you could easily take your income up 10x probably 100x but do you feel that you're calling your faith that you almost feel like you're being an imposter in the world of capitalism if you did that that you're more the prophet that willing to share versus the person that's wants to sing for their supper we left everything when we left law i mean i started at nineteen thousand dollars a year and they gave me a house and i promise you Lie would have made a lot more money than that. So, you know, that was the 90s. So you got to add some inflation in, but it might be the equivalent of twenty-five dollars or $30,000 today. So it wasn't much. And we have more than enough. We have been provided for beyond our, our wildest dreams. And we get to give back to our church now. So the business has, the company has done well. And I, I, I thought about even launching a nonprofit. 
And then having studied that, I thought, well, what's the difference between a nonprofit and a for-profit? The question is, do you pay taxes? So it's like, I'll I'll start a for-profit company and I'll just pay my taxes. So we just pay our taxes and we are more than provided for. And I have a beautiful team of like eight people and I get to pay them a living wage because I really did struggle with that. And I have some good mentors in my life. And again, this goes back to my faith. So just translate it in whatever you want. But let God determine size. If he wants to give me more, he can give me more. If he wants to give me less, he can give me less. So I'm not really pursuing the finances. I have to make sure that we're in the black. You know, we've been we've been blessed beyond anything that we would imagine. We were able to put our kids through school. We live in a nice, uh, pretty much paid for house. We have a nice boat that we get to use. We get to take a vacation every year. I'm very thankful for that. We're not We're not struggling. But the thing is, like, I just want to help leaders. I can understand that, I guess, when your audience is helping the leaders of churches. And I know you do a lot of work there. And you know that if I'm taking money from that church, that's money they could be using elsewhere. So I buy it. But as you've expanded your practice to outside of the church into working with some leaders, is it not fair to say that if you underprice yourself, they don't value what I have to say? I know it sounds so moronic to a lot of people listening. How dare you? But... The reality is, it's you know, it's that sense of the people you're talking about. The green room are probably some of them are probably making ten to twenty x what you're making for that same hour speaking at a conference. How do you find that balance so that you know when you're outside of the the world of church leaders that you're pricing yourself accordingly, even if you just give it all away? Tony, it's an interesting model. So the way we build the business to date is. A lot of what I offer is for free. So if you have no money, or honestly, we serve a lot of leaders in Africa, India. We hear from people all over the world that we have the privilege of serving. A lot of my stuff is free. My blog is free. There's over a thousand articles on there. And I put good stuff. It's not like, you know, oh, here's the problem. Go buy the solution. My podcast, I I bring top leaders in the world for free. And then we have sponsors on the podcast. And then I have different price points. So if you want my time, yeah, actually it's not cheap right now. So you're going to pay. I have a speakers bureau and it's going to cost you. I don't charge what, you know, a top name in business would, but you know, it's not cheap. That's my time. I'm trading time for money. So there is more expensive stuff that helps pay the bill. But I also, for 397, 447, I think the price is changing. I have something called the Art of Leadership Academy. That's a yearly fee. All of my premium courses are there, everything. It's like, I know Church World well enough to know that even small churches can afford that. And if it's gonna help grow your church, keep your staff, train them well, You know, the mantra is I went to law school, but nobody taught me how to lead a law firm. And I went to seminary and no one taught me how to run a church. So in the Art of Leadership Academy, what we do is we try to equip uh, small business leaders and church leaders with the tools that they need to do all the stuff you didn't learn in seminary, all the stuff you didn't learn in business school or law school. Because I've been to those schools and I know what's missing. I have to be very careful with money because it's a downfall of a lot of church leaders, a lot of Christians. And so I try to hold it loosely. So talk to me about your wife that you met first year of law school. She says, have you ever thought of being? And you go after it. She must have sacrificed. She must have got a lot of reward. But you know, your calling and how many people call on you doesn't always make time for a family. It was really, really hard in our 30s. You know, we did law school together and then I went to seminary. But when we moved up here and we started 
the churches, it got really hard because it was a rocket curve growth. Like we almost, we didn't quite start growing from day one, but it might've been day two. New people started showing up and a handful of people became dozens, became hundreds, became thousands. Up until my burnout, I didn't handle that well. I, I, I sacrificed my family on the altar of ministry and that was a horrible mistake. And that's one of the, you know, not like I went to my kids' games, but I was, I was home, but I wasn't really present. I was working too many hours. I was tired all the time. I've apologized to my grown kids for this so many times. And they're like, dad, it wasn't that bad, but I, I think it was bad. And there was, there was some pain there for sure. And Tony paid for that. My wife's name is Tony. Uh, but my burnout was such a gift because that stopped me dead in my tracks. And I'm like, I got to figure out another way. And so for the last 15, 16 years, We've been working on a much more shared vision. Uh, I have much more sustainable rhythm. It's one of those things where I do a lot less and I work a lot fewer hours. In fact, in my company right now, we're experimenting with a four-day work week. And she's sharp. She's a pharmacist and a lawyer. So she was able to practice part-time when the kids were younger and then scaled that up to full-time. And a few years ago, she pivoted. She wrote her own book. She does a podcast, the Smart Family Podcast. You know, So we're sort of working in the same fields these days. But yeah, that was, that's been a journey. And I would say it's a lot better now than it was, but I'm a slow learner and I had to figure out what's really important. And I had to learn that chasing success at the expense of family isn't really success. My, my mantra has been, I'll just, I know you got another question, but my mantra has become, I want the people closest to me to have the best experience of me. So I want my wife and my sons and the people I know in real life, because it doesn't really matter if somebody in LA thinks you're amazing, if your wife doesn't want to talk to you right now. And so I want the people closest to me to have the best experience of me. That's true of my staff. You know, sometimes I used to have meltdowns, like, why didn't this happen the way I want it to? And it's like, if I have a meltdown like that, I want it to happen in my head these days <laughs> and then run it through a filter before other people hear it. And so, yeah, it's been a, been a period of growth. And one of the great joys of being in the same place for 26 years is you don't get away. Like people see the growth. They remember how you were. And we'll talk with some of the people who I've worked with for 15 years. It's like, well, old Carrie would have, but you know, hopefully today we can handle it this way. So it's, it's very humbling and very grounding to be in the same place for 26 years. And one of the great rewards is like, you know, we had, we had a trip on the weekend where it was two hours to get to this two hour event and two hours back. I look forward to those car conversations. I look forward to trips together with her. We're on the road more together now that we're empty nesters. And, you know, we still have our, our snags, but they're snags. They're not, they're not, they're not the crises that were there 20 years ago. You know, Superman's weakness that could take him down was kryptonite. I'm going to just take a guess. Yours is guilt. Oh, really? Huh. It's almost this imposter syndrome that you're kind of guilty about being what you've accomplished. And it's interesting that you have this even now. It strikes me that you still suffer a little bit from not so much imposter syndrome that I don't feel I belong, but the imposter syndrome is I shouldn't be here. Yeah, you're probably right about that. I don't know what to do about that, but you're probably right about that. There is there's this sense. I think part of it is being Canadian. We don't know how to do success well. And some of it probably has to do with the church. Like I, I just, I see it go wrong so many times. I'm just really cautious about that. You know, that is something to unpack with my counselor. That is something to think about. It's a really, it's a really good observation, Tony. And I, 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 I'm taking notes on that. I always end my 
conversation with the three things I've taken away. The first one is, you know, the sense of the three tiers of leadership, but put yourself in a position where they can grow without you. And that's so easy to say, but time and time again, I've experienced that it's very difficult for someone to hand over the rudder. And I've seen it with parents and children. I've seen it with leaders in business. I've seen it with athletes that used to be the top of the game and the next generation's coming up. It's wonderful observation for all of us is real success is when everything that's been around you can grow without you. The second thing is this, I want those closest to me to have the best experience of me. As you get out there and you're building an entourage and an audience, you know, best-selling author, millions of people listening to the podcast. And I mean, this numbers, this is a pinball game that in this age of noise, it's, that's turning over and over for you because you put out great content. To have that insight, not when you're on your deathbed looking back saying, I wish I had done that, but to have found it so early in life, knowing that you have such a runway ahead of you is powerful advice for anybody listening to the show because that is ultimately your true test of character and your legacy is the people that are closest to you, how they experience you is very often how they'll go through life offering other people experiences. So I love that. And then the the third thing is that you're not afraid to talk about your faith or your calling. I just had Reverend Dr. Gordon Postel on the uh, podcast and he talked to, you know, he was a debauchery youth and he had this calling one day with the Bible. And I, I really thought about it for a while because I immediately dismissed it and then really realized that that was so powerful. He went from being, you know, a security guard and a minor to talking to the United Church in Rosedale to sponsor him to become a reverend. Whether you believe or not in a greater God, and I think ultimately we all believe that there's something out there, is opening your mind to having these callings is not something that just has to be within the boundaries of, of a church or believing in a Jesus Christ, but realizing that maybe sometimes those callings are out there if you take away the vanity plate of I should be a lawyer because my dad wanted it or I need a fancy car to impress and realize that I always say head, heart, and hands, how you think, how you feel, and how you be behave. When you can connect those, that's a life worth living. And Carrie, you're just such an extraordinary human being. It's a great chat, my friend. And thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for the work you do. This has been a fascinating conversation, and I'm just really grateful for it. I wonder how historians will treat the pandemic. There's no question they'll look at the statistics that people that were infected, sadly the people that we lost throughout it, but I'll also wonder if it'll look at as a changing point in humanity. I think in some ways that that pandemic was a lightning bolt. It struck a tinder of social unrest that was gripping our world. The you versus me, the left versus right, the anger, the attacks, and even now as we come out of it, you know, this sense of social unrest that we're seeing all over the planet. I respect people like Carrie Newoff and others that are devoting their life to finding a way to bring us back together, to create communities. Communities where people leave their social media and their screens and come back, whether that's around the office cooler at work, organized religion, organized sports, a book club. It's getting together with friends every Thursday night. I think there's so much they're trying to do, and more importantly, there's so much we can do 
to put the human back into humanity. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.